So we're continuing our, our study of the book of 1 John, the letter that, that, that the Apostle John wrote to his friends in the, in the church. And we come to the place here where he talks about what it means to be adopted by God, what it means to be part of God's family, what it means to call God our Father. It's 1 John chapter 3, and this is actually an important, one of the central themes of the Bible that carries across almost all of the biblical authors, that when we're saved by God, when we come, when we believe in God, when we trust in Christ, we don't just uh, receive him as our king, but we receive him and experience him ultimately as our father. First John 3 is probably one of the great and most inspiring passages in that regard. It says, see what great love the father has given us that we should be called God's children. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, we are God's children now, and yet what we will be has not yet been revealed. But we do know that when he appears, we'll be just like him, because we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. This is God's word for God's children this morning. I think one of the great benefits, the underestimated benefits of modern life is that everyone born, especially in America today, we have an opportunity to define our own identity. And to understand what I mean by that, think about how life has been for most of most humans over the history of humanity. You know, you were born in a little town, whether that little town was in uh, Ohio or China or Africa or wherever, and you pretty much knew that in that little town you would take over the family business, whatever that was, and ultimately you would live and be buried right next to your parents and grandparents before them because there was very little mobility. But today, what do we tell kids? Any of you go to a graduation ceremony this spring? What do, we, what do we tell all the kids in America today? You can be whatever you want to be. You can go wherever you want to go. There's no, there's no limits. You can discover your identity. You can explore this world and figure out what you're truly meant to be. And, you know, that, that's a great opportunity for us. And I know a lot of you guys have, have come a long way from the place you were born, from the profession that you're parents or the family business that you were in, uh, and, uh, and uh, we're, we're all kind of on this journey to figure out who we are and what we're going to be. But the challenge also is that with every opportunity comes responsibilities and comes risks, and we've got to be realistic. You know, the graduation speakers tell, tell the kids, well, you can be whatever you want to be, but it's absolutely not true. I mean, I know personally, I would make a terrible ballerina, you know. It just, I, I tried it, it just didn't work out well for me. But, uh, but we all actually have limits. And, you know, it's actually stressful in a lot of ways when you don't know what you're going to be. I mean, imagine back in the old days, if your father was Mr. Baker, you knew that you were going to bake bread your whole life. If your father was Mr. Smith, you knew you were going to be a, uh, a blacksmith when you grew up. If your father was a wellman, you knew you were going to dig ditches your whole life. Everybody kind of knew, knew where they were going to end up, and 
But in our day, what have we we've identified? We invented this thing called the identity crisis, right? And what's the identity crisis when we just don't know who we are or what we're supposed to be or what our purpose is or what the meaning of life is? So I want to share with you, I think, the, the, the most essential thing you need to understand, regardless of where you are in your journey of discovering yourself and your vocation and your place in the world. And it's, it's the identity that God gives us when we, when we trust in him. You know, one of the things that I've noticed over the years is there's all kinds of identities we adopt as we go along the way and as we, we work through life. And, uh, but, but the ones that matter aren't the ones that we claim for ourselves or the ones we put on ourselves. The ones that matter are the ones, the identities that other people put on us. I mean, just to give you an example, if anybody who wants to can decide today that they want to be a Yankee fan. I got a friend who's relocated to New York from Boston and he wore his, his Red Sox hat for uh, a couple months and he took so much abuse, he's like, that's it, I'm in New York now, I'm going to stay here. And so he went out and got a Yankee hat and now, now he's a, he considers himself a, a legitimate Yankee fan, but, but in time will tell. But, but it's easy to be a Yankee fan if you want to be, you just got to go to Walmart, buy the hat, and, uh, you know, make fun of your friends at work who are Mets fans and, uh, you know, ar argue about the starting lineup. And, and, and it, it, it's simple. Anybody can do it. And that's why there's thousands and thousands of people who are Yankee fans in, in this world and in this city. But, you know, what's hard is being one of 27 guys on the roster, you know, actually making the team, actually suiting up on opening day. That, that's difficult because only a handful of people get to do that. And you don't get to do that just because you decide, well, I want to be a Yankee. Nobody gets to do it on those terms. The only way you become a Yankee fan is if someone else tells you, or a, a Yankee player is if someone else tells you that, that that's what you're going to be. And the identities that matter are that way. They're not something we simply claim for ourselves or demand for ourselves. They're something that someone else gives to us, something someone else bestows on it. I mean, think about it. To get into an elite school, it's not something you just decide for yourself. It's something someone else decides for you. To get a great job at a great company or great position, it's not something you just visualize for yourself. It's something that someone else bestows upon you. To be invited into a family is not something you just, you, you just demand. It's something that someone else invites you into. And the identities that matter are not something you just assert or demand or claim. It's something that someone else gives to you to be part of a greater whole. And in light of this, let's read again the first line here. See what great love the Father has given us, that we should be called God's children, and that is what we are. See, he's saying that can you imagine this amazing idea that God has invited us to be part of his family? That God, the Father, the creator of the world, has invited you to be his child. And that's what you are. Mentioned before that the book of 1 John was not written by a young idealist. It was written by an old guy who'd been around the block a long time. Some people think maybe this was the last part of the New Testament ever written. We don't, don't exactly know. But... John had been through a lot, and he had seen a lot. He had been jaded by a lot of things. He had seen a lot of ups and downs. He had seen 
seen, gone through a lot of tough things, but one thing that didn't cease to amaze him was this. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. That blew his mind. That was something that he just still could not get over, that God had taken him and placed his love on him, that God had taken him and said, come be part of my family. And now he could claim his identity as a child of God. The highest blessing of the gospel is that we're adopted. In fact, all the other things we talk about in the Christian life, like being forgiven, uh, being sanctified, and, and being chosen, all those other things, they all come up to this. The highest blessing is that you can call God Father. That's why it was so revolutionary for Jesus in the, in the Lord's Prayer to invite people to pray. When you pray, say what? Our Father, who art in heaven. Because Jesus was the one who introduced the idea that prayer is essentially a child approaching his loving, benevolent, perfect Father and saying, can you please help me out with this? Can you please give me this? I need your presence. I need your grace. And so now, now Sue Young back there, everyone turn around and look at Sue Young and look at Lauren. Lauren's sleeping right now. But the reason she's sleeping right now, I hear, is because she doesn't sleep at night ever. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but Sue Young will soon learn that, that it, he's never, ever going to be able to say no to that little baby. And it's going to be a problem for that little baby, but, uh, but his wife will help him. And so, but, you know, what, what do fathers want when their baby comes to them? They want to be able to give the child, whatever the child is asking for, whatever the child needs. And one of the things, one of the things that motivates guys to get their stuff together is when they realize they have a kid and they've got to be able to provide for that kid and give the kid the things that, that they need. And so John says, Jesus says, when you pray, say, our Father in heaven. Remember, you're coming to a father who wants what's best for you, who wants to give you everything you need. So just ask him for it, and he'll be delighted to do that. So this is the new identity. This is what, this is what it means to be a Christian, essentially, is that you're a child of God, that you identify yourself as a child of God, that you look at, you, you see yourself as someone who is part of his family. And in a world where our issues of identity are up for grabs, the Bible, the Gospel, invites you and me to start here. That your identity is not found in your work, your identity isn't even found in your relationships, isn't found in the things you do or things you've failed at or the messes you've made. Your identity, ultimately, is found in this. That you are a child of God and He invites you to come to Him and say, Father in Heaven, please help me. So if you understand that, one of the things that this results in is it's a basis for our relationship with one another. It becomes the new, the new family that defines us all and the new thing that we all have in common. Look at what John says. He says, he says, dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been known. And, and actually, I don't like that translation. The word there is agapatoi, or in other words, it's translated in most places, beloved. My beloved friends. He's like, all, all of you, my beloved family, we're all God's children together. And so he's reminding all of these people that regardless of where you're coming from, regardless of what country you were born in, regardless of what your first language or your second language or your third language is, regardless of your background, regardless of your future, we are all 
one another's friends now. We all have something in common that transcends all of those things, and it's the basis for unity. Uh, you know, I, I think one of the challenges of the whole issue of identity and as people work through identity is, is how different, different groups, different racial groups, different social groups tend to divide along certain identities. And, you know, we talk about identity politics where you define yourself by who you are, by who, who you're not. And, uh, one of the problems with that is demagogues through the ages have found that the best way to unite a group of people is what? The best way to unite a group of people and bring a group of people together is to identify someone that everybody in that group hates, right? And if we all hate a certain people, if we can all agree that a certain group of people is, is against us, then we can all unite around us. And you see, you see this repeating itself over and over and over again. But probably the, the paradigm of this was Hitler and the Jews, but, but demagogues do it in every day, in every age, whenever they're trying to, to create a, a mass movement or draw a bunch of people together. They, they, uh, they say, well, who, who can we all agree together that we're going to hate? But this is a better way. The Bible gives us a better way. God's, God's word and the gospel give us a better way to be united by love. As, as John says here, how great is the love that the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. Beloved, that is what we are. He's saying that's what we are and that's what can unite us. When we have that in common, when we're all family, when we have the same Father, the same heritage in Christ, and the same future, and the same hope, that's a basis for unity right here and right now. I mean, imagine a world, a nation, a city where where everybody identified themselves as children of God. And if that was elevated to the highest 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 part of your identity, then everything else could be subordinated under that. And and, and if we let that become the most important thing, then the other things that tend to divide us as people and even as, as believers can be put in their proper place. So as we understand the identity that matters, it's a basis for unity. And, and the third thing I want you to see is that it's the basis for hope. It's our ultimate hope. He says that is what we are. In other words, that's our status. But right now we're still struggling. Right now some of us are still hard up. Right now some of us are still feeling poor. Right now some of us are struggling with health issues. Right now some of us are feeling lonely and alienated and we're broken relationships and, and life's kind of a mess. And yet that is what we are. And But he says, what we will be has not yet been made known. He's saying, so you've got this status as a child of God, but it hasn't yet been fully fully vested in your life. The promise has been made to you, the commitment's been made to you, and God is going to fulfill this in your identity and in your future. You're going to, to live out the glory of being a child of God, but, but, and that's the promise to you, but it hasn't yet happened. And so right now, you do have struggles. Right now, you do feel lonely. Right now, you are struggling to make ends meet. Right now, you do wonder sometimes who, who really loves you, who really cares about you. Right now, you're a little worried about the future and how, how all the bills are going to get paid or whatever the challenge might be. But one day, he promises, 
what we will be will be made known. And this is going to be the spectacular, life-changing dynamic, because this is what this is, is a call to live with hope regardless of where you're at right now. Uh, it, it's, a, it's an opportunity to live with hope even in the midst of the difficulties that you face. I mean, I, I know life is full of struggles, and even, even when you start talking about family as a pastor, it, it's always fraught. Because we talk about family, we talk about fathers and mothers and Mother's Day and all those kinds of things, and you realize in a, in a group like this, there's all kinds of folks with all kinds of complex relationships with their family and all kinds of heartbreak and frustration and limits and wounds that come from family. I mean, family on one hand is one of the greatest blessings that God gives us, but it's also often the source of our greatest disappointment and heartbreak when our family doesn't fulfill our ultimate hope. And sometimes even Mother's Day, you know, it's one of the greatest blessings to be a mother, to have a mother, but then there's all this complexity around it for many of our lives because of complicated dynamics with in those areas. Areas, And we talk about fatherhood, you know, God as, as our father, and one of the greatest crises for a lot of our youth right now is the crisis of fatherlessness. And the statistics are clear that young, young men who grow up and young women who grow up without a father present in their life and a father involved in their life are going to be at risk for all kinds of things. It's one of the big issues that surrounds us even today. Uh, you know, and I, I mean, I know in my own life, I know this and I still have problems. I'm like, well, I am a child of God. I am a son of the king. And yet I still got these issues that are obsessing, that I'm obsessing about. But these are, that's, that, that's the challenge of life. But when we live with hope, when we have this hope, it enables us to get through those challenges. I mean, I know probably many of you have had a situation where you've had a, a pain in your side or a pain in your knee. And you're like, this is unbearable. I got to go to the doctor. And you go to the doctor, and, and sometimes you go to the doctor with that pain, and the doctor says, oh, you know what? You have a little, a little strain there, a little soreness. Just rest for a couple weeks. You know, stop, stop running 10 miles a day, and and it's going to get better real soon. You know, so, sometimes the doctor tells you that, and and you leave the doctor, and you're feeling pretty good. Other times, the doctor gets all concerned and he says, I've got to run some more tests. I don't want to say anything until we get, get the results on these future tests. And then he runs more tests and then, then you go back to him for your consultation. He says, well, I've got bad news for you. You know the pain you have. It's just going to get worse. And it points to something bigger and actually there's nothing we can do about it. You're just going to have to live with it. And you leave that doctor all depressed because there's no hope. He didn't give you any hope that he could possibly cure it. He didn't give you any hope that he had a solution to the problem that you faced. Because, see, we can, I've found that we can put up with almost anything if we have hope that it's ultimately going to be solved. And the promise of our identity as a child of God is all about hope. It's not just about what we are. It is about what we are in terms of our status, but it's, it's also about what we will be in terms of our nature. I put another reference down, and I want to give you guys a homework assignment, and it's to go home and look this up in your Bibles. It's Romans chapter 8. It's another chapter. You know, all of the New Testament authors talk about this idea of us being children of God in different ways. And most of them tie it into our hope of glory, of what we will be one day. 
Look at Romans chapter 8. I, I, uh, it's in, in the PowerPoint there. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willing, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that its creation itself will be set free from its bondage to, to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth till now. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. What's the whole point of living by hope is that you don't yet have what you hope for, right? That's what it means. But if we hope for what we do not yet see, we wait for it with patience. When we're talking about being a child of God, we're talking about living at hope with hope, even in the midst of our poverty, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our alienation and our agony and our loneliness right now. We know that one day our true identity is going to be revealed. One day our glory is going to be displayed. One day our hope is going to be sight. And, you know, we can put up with the, the challenges we have when we know that they are temporary. The promise of hope is that your heartbreak is just going to last a little longer. Your pain is just going to last a little longer. And what you will be has not yet been made known. And so we can live with this hope in the midst of our challenges. And finally, I want to say it's a, the basis for a changed and transformed life. Look at verse 3. He says, everyone who has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure. The hope to become a child of God is not a hope that we that we get if we sort our lives out and if we clean our lives up. It's a hope that we have because God has shed his grace on us, because God has been merciful to us just as we are, and because God has received us as sinners in and through his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And our life transformation is a response to that hope. See, I think one of the reasons we find ourselves fall, falling into sin is we get frustrated with life. We get frustrated and life seems so futile, life seems so helpless. And so, so we hold on to our re resentment and our grudges and we refuse to forgive and we do things with drugs and sex and money and we hold on to hate and resentment and revenge. And, and all those things happen because we think that right here is all there is. But if we have hope of a new identity, if we have hope of a future, that transcends all of those problems and gives us a reason and an inspiration to change our lives right here, right now. And that's a hope that's guaranteed. And, you know, here's the thing about it. When we do fail, and we, and we do fail, most of us continue to fail and fall fail to live up to the ideals we set for ourselves, fail to live up to the standards we believe we should live by, there's still hope, because the hope isn't based on our own achievements, it's not based on our own efforts, it's based on God's grace and God's love for us. It's not 
a hope that's grounded in our performance, not like, well, if I work really hard, I'll earn enough to take care of this, or if I try really hard, I've got the talent to accomplish this. It's a hope that's based on what God has done for us. Theologians talk about something called the covenant of redemption. This is just reconstructed from the whole story of the Bible. You know, the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, they got together in conference, and they looked at, at the state of the world, and, and uh, the Father said, you know, I'd like to adopt, I'd like to adopt these, these people as, as my children. But, and the Son said, well, that sounds like a good idea. But the Father said, well, they'll have to share my love with you, or you will have to share my love with them. And the Son said, well, I'm willing to do that because it seems like there's enough love in God the Father to go around. And the Father said, well, you're going to have to share your inheritance with them. And the Son said, well, I'm willing to do that because it seems like the inheritance is bountiful enough that we'll all enjoy it together for all of eternity. And, and the the, the father said, well, you'll have to call them your brothers and sisters. And the son said, well, that's, that's going to involve some humiliation on my part, but I'm willing to do that to bring them into the family. And then the father said, you know what? You're going to have to redeem them because they are all but irredeemable. And the father said, well, what, what's that going to take? What's that going to require of me to redeem redeem everybody father said well you're going to have to be forsaken by me you're going to have to be nailed to a cross you're going to have to bear the punishment for all of their sins and the son committed himself to do that but it was almost a bridge too far you know the story in Gethsemane the night before he was betrayed he prayed and he said father if there be any other way let this cup Pass from me, yet not my will, but thine be done. My father said, there is no other way. The only way we can redeem them, the only way I can adopt them, the only way I can make them your brother, the only way I can make them my children is if you, my only begotten son, is willing to suffer in their place, is willing to die in their place, is willing to be forsaken so that they can be forgiven and is willing to be willing to be punished so they can be redeemed and so Jesus prayed and Jesus pled that he might be spared of this but ultimately he surrendered to the father's will sacrificed himself and suffered in your place and my place the only begotten son the one who was beloved from before the creation of the world suffered and died so that we could be adopted into that family so that we could participate in that fellowship. And one of his last invitations, last promises to his disciples was simply this. His followers, you and you and me, was in my father's house there are many mansions and I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And when I go, I will come back and I'll bring you there. That's the ministry of Jesus and the invitation of Jesus to you and to me and the hope that he gives us. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, I thank you for the love of Jesus. I thank you for the invitation of Jesus. I thank you for the grace of Jesus. And I ask, O Lord, that you would help us, help us to live in hope. Pray for those who are struggling today, for those who are suffering today, for those who feel alienated today, that they would find in your love and in a new identity as a child of God the hope and the security that they need as they face what today and tomorrow and this week and this month is going to throw at them. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.